So I guess in your work with John the last couple of years, uh, have you seen any trends in terms of enterprise adoption of serverless, any sort of common patterns or common problems or challenges that uh, people run into in that space? Yeah, and I think it is it is increasing. Uh, I think some of the challenges are this in this architecture world, um, and, I, and I really want to be thinking about this a little bit more over the next six months or so. I, I you know, it's it's a little bit like the microservices problem, but amplified even more. So, a lot of people when they start reading about microservices think that they need microservices for everything, and they end up with. 150 different microservices when, you know, 10 might have been fine. Um, and having this vast Cambrian explosion of microservices causes some real headaches. Um, and it causes, you know, it, it makes it hard to find bugs. It makes development slower, all those kinds of things. I think a lot of uh, sort of bigger enterprises may think about building serverless applications in kind of that same way and that they end up with you know, this this whole Lambda pinball thing that I was t- talking about earlier, where they have all these tiny, tiny services all trying to communicate with each other. And I think that causes a lot of problems um, and, and a lot of pushback. And, and that's fair enough, because if I had to work in a world where a thousand different Lambda functions all need to know about each other, I think I would be pushing back as well. Um, so I, I definitely see those problems um, and, I, and I see, you know, some of these engineering practice problems I've been talking about. I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I try to express to folks is that, and I've done this for a number of years, is that the Lambda programming model is very simple. And when we're writing unit tests, it's very like the same code that I've written for 20 plus years at the coding level. But serverless applications from an architectural point of view are, are very, very different. And, and I think that there needs to be better training uh, on, on the, in this area. Uh, and I think that companies need to be open to the idea that if, if they want their teams to be using um, these techniques and these services, that they need to put explicit effort into education and training. Because just expecting that people are going to pick up the Lambda framework and start building great applications from just by figuring it out by themselves um, has proven to be not true. <laughs> and so and so we need to, as an industry, we need to figure out how to solve that better. Um, I think that, you know, one thing to be said is that, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit about lifting and shifting in terms of the Lambda function size. I think that there is a really good case to be made that you can take a microservice architecture and, and pretty much lift and shift that into a serverless architecture and it will work pretty well. It's not necessarily optimal from an architecture point of view, but I think it would work pretty. I think they work pretty well, and that's certainly going to be better than a lot of the problems that that companies are finding themselves in. Uh, and so, I think if I, you know, if I talk to companies now, it's like okay, you know, microservices and serverless can can gel as a, as a common way of thinking. So start there, and and then and then try and optimize your 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 thinking over time after that. I think that echoes a lot of the similar challenges that I've seen in my clientele as well, uh, where a lot of clients uh, think they can, you know, think this Lambda thing is, is easy. Uh, we've got this, uh, and then they go ahead and, and build some uh, Frankenstein application, and then uh, they realize 
this doesn't quite seem right. <laughs> and then they right. start to ask for help. And at that point, of course, it's a lot harder for them to, you know, to, to I guess, uh, steer themselves back in the right track. And I certainly do agree that training has been a, has been something of an afterthought sometimes uh, because, again, serverless just seems so deceptively simple. But when you are not used to thinking about that world, especially when you're coming from monolith uh, to straight into serverless, uh, there's a lot of the practices, a lot of how you set up your environment, how you approach the testing and all of that uh, can be quite a big challenge and quite a big jump to, um, I guess, quite a big change to how people are used to doing things. Um, are you seeing, any, besides, I guess, um, sometimes a lack of willingness to invest into training and learning uh, from these companies? Uh, is there any other, anything else that maybe uh, we could have done better as, a, as maybe as a community uh, or as consultants to have uh, encouraged people to uh, maybe you know, take more of a proactive step into explicit learning about how does this you know, serverless architecture work and what is a good looking service architecture versus uh, uh, you know, like you said a thousand lambdas all having to know each other and uh, doing some kind of a ping ball thing yeah I, it was actually I was thinking as you were talking there I was like there, there's absolutely something that we can do better in that one of the things that those of us that have been very enthusiastic about this over the, the years now is that we say this is a simpler way of building applications you know you can go from idea to production in less than a day. Um, and that is true. I absolutely stand by that. But that is in the context of, you know how to use these things. Uh, and I think that we need to do a better job of saying, you know, all of those time to market advantages that serverless offers are true. However, you need to understand that you, this is not just because you can do things quickly doesn't necessarily mean it's simple or it's easy to to jump in and start doing the right thing immediately. Um, you know, there is a point from which you need to stop. You know, it, it's, you can jump in and prototype something quickly, but you're going to need to think about what does that mean to build a production application there. Um, and, and for those of us that have been building these systems now for multiple years, that transition is going to be easy. But I think we need to help people understand that you know, that there is a transition there. There is going to be extra work. Um, uh, one of my old, old friends and colleagues, uh, Daniel Terhorse North, has this idea that he tries to promote with people when they're building new applications of any type, that um, there's these two phases to building an application um, called spike and stabilize. The spike is when you try and figure out whether what you're doing is at all the right thing to do. And then stabilize is a completely different mode of thinking where how do I build an application that is going to last years, assuming that you're building something that's going to last years. And it might be, and this is sort of one of the crucial things he talks about there, it might be that that second phase, you throw away everything technologically that you built in the first place and rebuild it, but it's probably going to take you 10% of the time because you've already learned so much in that first phase. So I think that one of the things that we need to do better is say, yes, it is it is much faster from a time to market point of view to build with serverless techniques. However, in order to build long term sustainable serverless applications, there needs to be some training and education and learning how not to cause you cause yourself massive problems. 
Absolutely. Um, I also, I guess, I often tell my clients uh, how quickly I can get stuff done. Uh, I guess uh, maybe one thing I should also mention is that it's taken me 15 years to get to the point where I can get things done that quickly. Yeah, and and I, I I will fully admit, you know, John and I make you know sometimes make this mistake where you know we've been over the last few months we've been building a lot of um, AWS Glue based serverless data pipelines, and um, you know especially because it's two of us working together and we both understand each other very well, it's very easy for us to like build something and figure it's easy because we just explained it to the other person in ten seconds, but. John and I have this context of yes, decades of, of shared experience um, that you know it's not everyone has, and in fact, almost no one has the same type, exact type of experience that John and I have. And so, yes, we we all need to do a better job of saying, okay, this is this is how we got to this point. And it's tricky because sometimes people really want just to know the end result. Um, but what I've been trying to do more in my, and this is where the, the, the YouTube series comes in again, is I really, I'm trying to more explicitly explain my thinking about how I get to a point. Um, and some people are going to really appreciate that. They're going to appreciate the, the learning and some people are still going to, you know, they're just going to want the, the instant gratification. And then, you know, that's fine. I don't need to please all the people all the time. Yeah, I see the same thing as well. Um, that most of the time, the client just asks me, "What's the best practice for X?" Uh, and substitute X for pretty much anything. Uh, and uh, most of the time, I have to tell them, "Oh, well, it really depends." <laughs> and then have a really long discussion about what it is they actually want to do, and the constraints that they're working with. Uh, it's not just a case of, "Hey, here's an answer that's going to work for everybody." And I, th I think sometimes that is a bit hard to uh, digest if you're the client and you're paying someone a lot of money for advice and you're kind of just hoping that there's going to be uh, some magical answer that uh, they know that is going to help you with everything <laughs> that you don't have to do any work yourself. Um, so I guess we're going to have the YouTube, uh, I'm going to link the YouTube uh, uh, videos uh, in the show notes as well. Is there anything else that you're working on right now? Uh, any, I guess, a pet project? Uh so I guess that this, the the YouTube videos have become my pet project. I'm not going to lie, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I mentioned before that I work with Jez Humble, who who wrote the continuous delivery book and, and DevOps book. Since then, um, I I was doing this kind of what we now think of as, as continuous deployment um, a long time ago. So I'm looking forward to sort of bringing my thoughts on that into the YouTube series. So that's there's definitely going to be a lot of DevOpsy stuff in my YouTube series, because that's that's definitely one of my uh, favorite things to chat about. The other thing that I'd really love to, to do more sort of public stuff on is this thing that I was just mentioning before, which is this concept of serverless data pipelines. Um, so we've had three different client projects this year that have all been based upon this idea. So this is about um, not just using S3 as your data lake, although that's part of it, but it's talking about how you use other tools uh, like Glue and Athena and, and even Redshift now, which has serverless elements to it, how you use these techniques, uh, these tools um, to build a, a bigger data pipeline and data platform, but using these serverless ideas that we've been building over the last few years. Um, so I say we've done this three times now with three different clients. And so there's definitely some lessons that we've learned there. Um, and it'd be great to write that up, but it's it's one of those things where it's going to be a while because there's a lot to it, and just picking out one thing kind of doesn't make sense. There needs to be a sort of a bigger story there. So I'd love I'd love to be able to dig in more on that. 
John's been doing some research about how we can have some examples that we can show that public. Um, but I think it's going to be a while, but it would be, it would be great to, to, to do more on that. Okay, so I'm actually quite curious about glue because I've only ever used it in the context of using glue with Athena. Um, I, is that what you were doing as well, or were you using glues as a as the engine for running ETL jobs as well? Yeah, kind of both. Um, so glue is actually the sort of big suite of fam of, of of services um, that really sort of break down into two. So one is this concept of the glue catalog, um, which is basically metadata about various data sources um, and some of those data sources are in s3 um, but some of those can be in other places as well um, most people assume that you have to populate that data catalog using these things called glue crawlers uh, which is very common but you don't have to you can also populate that data catalog manually yourself if it makes more sense um, you can even do that using uh, CloudFormation uh, resources to populate parts of that glue catalog um, so that's one half of Glue is this is this metadata repository. Uh, so Glue catalog, Glue tables, Glue crawlers are all in that realm. The other half of Glue is this thing called Glue ETL, um, which is basically um, serverless Spark as a service. Um, it, it's running Spark under the covers, and what Glue ETL lets you do is write ETL jobs. Um, so the whole point about ETL: extract, transform, and load. It's the idea where you take data from one place or maybe multiple places, uh, do some processing on that data, and then save it out to one or multiple other places. So very typically, you might read it out of S3 and load it into Redshift. That's a very common pattern, um, but you can do many, many other things as well. And we've been doing all kinds of really interesting things with that. Um, the nice thing about Glue ETL is it has the power of Spark, which is extremely complicated. Um, and for many years, people have been having to run their own EMR pla um, platforms or servers or, or clusters rather to do this work. But Glue really abstracts a lot of that. Um, and, and what happened this year in the summer was that Amazon introduced this thing called uh, Glue ETL version 2. And what that does is, I know this is going to sound small and trivial, but it makes the minimum job size price one minute. It used to be that you had to pay for at least 10 minutes of a job. Now you only need to pay for uh, the minimum cost is one minute. And what that does is that really opens up Glue ETL to being much more useful to smaller data size problems. And it really used to be that unless you were dealing with, you know, gigabytes of data that it didn't really make sense to use Glue ETL from a cost point of view. But now you can think about using Glue ETL um, for much smaller data sets and, and for it to make sense from a cost point of view. Um, so yeah, that's that's what that's what Glue ETL is, and it's, it uses the Glue catalog stuff, but it's really a very different service. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so I guess that that explains why uh, people used to tell me that uh, Glue is uh, really expensive. I guess that's because of that. You have to charge for a ten minutes uh, minimum, even if you just want to run something for like thirty seconds. So I guess in this case, uh, is uh, if you want to run something that's for I don't know thirty seconds, you're still going to pay for the, the whole one minute, right? It's going to uh, round up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, those things, are, it still takes, uh, Glue ETL jobs take, take a couple of minutes to start up. Um, well, they used to, now they take about 10 seconds to start up. So these are not things that you're going to do in terms of reacting to user events immediately. This is very much offline asynchronous processing. Um, but yeah, you can now, say, run 
20 of those sort of 30 second jobs a day or 100 of those 30 second jobs a day and for it to make some amount of cost sense. Whereas before you would have start, you would have actually had to have started thinking, does this really make sense from a cost point of view? Um, but now, now those kind of things really do make that kind of sense. And one of the things that's super useful is that it really can, writing glue ETL jobs really can solve you, save you a lot of um, coding effort. So one of the things that we're doing right now with one of our clients is that the, the source for one of our ETL jobs is an upstream SQL Server database. Um, and I, I don't want to write custom SQL that goes and calls a SQL Server database because that's not something I've had to think about for a while. One of the things that Glue ETL lets you do, is it lets you, well, Glue in general lets you do, is it lets you set up that JDBC, set up that Microsoft SQL Server source as a JDBC source. And then Glue ETL will just do all of that JDBC stuff for you. You just say, oh, I want to read from that location. And Glue ETL does all the work. You just declare it as a, as a data source. Um, and so that can really save a lot of coding work. So now I think for these medium data, because it used to be really just a big data project pro platform, for these medium data questions, I think that Glue ETL, as of this summer, is a, is a much more interesting uh, tool to use. Okay, I'm going to have to look into that, uh, something that I've had to do a few times myself, uh, but uh, uh, sounds like I could have made myself, well, made my life a lot easier if I had uh, just look at uh, uh, using Glue ETL instead. I would say the documentation for Glue ETL is, uh, is not always the best. <laughs> um, so there's definitely some pain there. Uh, but yeah, from a, from, a, from a technology point of view, it, it's pretty cool. Oh, I'm familiar with the pain with uh, AWS documentations. Uh, uh, Cognito being like my number one uh, uh, pet uh, hate when it comes to uh, documentation fails. Um, I guess there are about... many many things I could tell you about Cognito that that, that would be an entire separate podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's great. Thank you so much, uh, Mike. Uh, and uh, certainly, I really enjoyed uh, learning about Glue uh, just now. Uh, something that uh, I've been meaning to learn about uh, for a while. Um, is there anything else that uh, I guess you want to you know uh, tell the listeners uh, before we go? Uh, yeah, go buy my book. Uh, <laughs> um, it, obviously, that would, that would be great. Um, the, if you have, one of the things that's great, we did this book with O'Reilly, and it was really fun to write a book with O'Reilly because the very first Java book that I bought was an O'Reilly book 23 years ago. Um, one of the things that O'Reilly have now is their O'Reilly learning platform. And a lot of companies just give their employees access to this learning platform. Uh, and so if you have access, you can just go and read our book. You don't actually have to go and buy it. Um, obviously, we'd like it if you go and buy it. But if you have the learning platform, then, then go and take a look. Um, one of the other things that we did with the book is that, not surprisingly, all the source code is on our GitHub repo. And so if you're interested in some of these things that I've been chatting about around separating out different um, Lambda functions with all of their different dependencies and libraries, that is all... Um, embraced in in the um, in the source code for the book, uh, which you can find in our public GitHub. Okay, I will make sure that I put the link to the book as well as the GitHub repo in the show notes. So, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, two ways: uh, symphonia.io, s y m p h o n i a. Although I'm sure that Jan will link this, um, and then on Twitter. I am Mike B Roberts, um, and I and I do tweet, uh, so that's the best place to find me uh, personally. Yep, I'll uh, yep I will include those uh, in the show notes as well. 
Um, so with that, I guess, uh, thank you so much, Mike, uh, for spending your time to talk to us today. And I hope you stay safe and uh, most see you in person at some, uh, sometime soon. <laughs> Uh, yes, thanks, thanks, John. Thanks for inviting me. And yeah, everyone, please stay safe and sane. It's a it's a tough year. Take it easy. Bye bye. Bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.